If you would, turn with me to Philippians chapter 1 and verse 12 this morning. We're going to read the text, 12 to 18, to set the context. We're going to focus on one verse in particular, verse 14, this morning, and sort of a review of verse 14, because I've already covered this once, but I want to to go back and glean from this text something that I think I missed and something I think that we need to be reminded of this morning. So let's read through God's word this morning in verses 12 to 18 and hear how the Lord would speak to us today. Paul, in response to the Philippians and their care for him through Epaphroditus, responds to them in this letter by writing this in verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice, he says. Yes, and I will rejoice. In this, Paul rejoices. In the midst of his suffering, the gospel is advancing. When they ask him about how he's doing, he says, let me tell you how the gospel's doing. He bypasses himself to talk about Christ. And he says, in all of this, I rejoice. In all of what? In, in the joyful advancement of the gospel. That's what he's rejoicing in. And last week we, we looked at this a little bit in verses 12 and 13. We saw that the joyful advancement of the gospel flowed out of confidence in God's providence. Confidence in God's providential plan for suffering in particular. God placed Paul in this prison for a particular reason. So that the imperial soldiers would hear the gospel. He was rejoicing in the advancement of the gospel through his suffering. Today, we're going to look at how the joyful advancement of the gospel flows out of, number two, confidence. It flows out of confidence in God's persevering people. Confidence in God's work in God's people. That's what Paul was confident in. He wasn't confident in people. He was confident in what God was doing through his people, and he was rejoicing over God's people as they were persevering in the face of opposition. Paul trusted. He trusted God to use others to advance the gospel. And I think there's, there's two things that, that happen as a result of this. One, Paul is humbled, and these Roman believers are encouraged, but I also think that the Philippians are encouraged because Paul's talking about how the Roman believers were left alone when Paul was in prison, yet they were much more bold and confident to preach the gospel as a result of his imprisonment. And I think the Philippians felt alone also because Paul wasn't there with them. And they're, 
possibly going to face persecution for the gospel. He's saying, it's okay. When I'm not here, God's still working. I'm dispensable. But the gospel is indispensable. And it is what is going forth. It's going forth through his people. We aren't indispensable, but the gospel is indispensable. And it does advance through God's people. And that's what he's rejoicing in here. And let's read verse 14 together to see that a little more clearly. He says, and most of the brothers, as a result of his imprisonment, he says this, and most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without phobos, without fear, without any intimidation. Why does he bring this out? I think he's bringing this out because he is showing us something that will protect us from verses 15 to 17. Rivalry and envy when others are prospering, when others are progressing. I think the Apostle Paul is rejoicing here when God uses others to advance the gospel. I think Paul wants the Philippians to know that, again, he is not indispensable. That God will raise up other people and God will cultivate perseverance in them so that they will proclaim the message when Paul cannot, when we cannot. God will make advancements in the world through his people, even though we can't do it in particular at times. And we should rejoice over that. We should rejoice when others outshine us in their ministry because they're shining the light of Jesus, and that we should rejoice in. Paul knows that that's what they're doing, and this message they're proclaiming is indispensable. And the message is advancing through them, and he's rejoicing here in this. And I think that's what we should rejoice in. Just think about this this morning. Right now, as we're gathered here this morning, thousands, maybe millions of other saints are gathered together advancing the gospel in praise and thanksgiving and worship. And we should rejoice in that. We should rejoice that at John MacArthur's church, 3,000 people are gathering to worship Jesus. We shouldn't be jealous of that. We should be rejoicing in that. I think that's what Paul's doing here. He's telling us we should rejoice over God's work. God's work in the lives of his brothers and sisters. We should, we should be thrilled when others are advancing and growing and maturing and progressing when we can't. Like here in prison, he's stuck. We should be doing this. But God knows that sometimes we don't. That seems to be the problem there in verses 15 to 17 with these men who are envious and their rivalries are stirring up selfish ambition in their hearts. That happens sometimes, I think, because when we see others growing, when we see churches growing, and other people making progress and advancing and being praised, sometimes that reveals what's down deep inside of us, and envy arises. Envy and rivalry and selfish ambition often show up when other people are prospering spiritually and outgrowing us spiritually, or when churches are outgrowing us numerically. Sometimes that's when envy and rivalry and selfish ambition shows up. I always know when that shows up when I'm at a, well, at some, some pastor's conferences. I always know when this shows up. Because the first question that I receive from other pastors is always this. So how many attend your church? I've tried to skillfully answer that 
over the years. As many as I am thankful to give account for on that day before Jesus. That's how many. Spiritual pride rises up, though, sometimes in those settings. When one man says, I have 300. Another man walks up and says, I have 700. Oh, no, I have 3,000. I'm thankful for that. But in my heart, envy and rivalry and selfish ambitions there. I want the 300. I want the 500. I want the 3,000. I do, because the people represent souls that can worship Jesus. But sometimes our selfishness will get in front of the mission. We'll forget that we're here to advance the gospel, and we'll try to advance our ministry, our reputation. Paul's trying to prevent that, I think, in a proactive way here. There's no direct rebuke to the men that are mentioned in 15 to 17. They're not rebuked directly. It's indirect, though, here in this text. This attitude of selfishness has, has caused more divisions in churches than can be numbered. So I think that's why verse 14 is included in this letter to the Philippians. I think that's why it's here. I think it's not just to tell them a little passing note about the men at Rome that are bold and confident. I mean, I think that's encouraging. It's encouraging to hear about the confidence of other brothers. But I think that it's actually a reflection of the Apostle Paul's attitude when others prosper that's being reflected here. How do we respond when others are prospering when we cannot? I think Paul gives us a great illustration here of how we should respond. I think Paul's reaction to their prosperity and their advancement and their boldness and their confidence and their reputation while he's suffering is amazing. I think it's astounding. Look at how he responds to the news of their boldness. He's, he's excited. He's telling the Philippians, look, I'm imprisoned, but... But the word, oh, it's making inroads. It's advancing through God's people. It's not my reputation that matters. It's the reputation of Christ. It's the power of the gospel that's emboldening these men. They see that my imprisonment is part of God's plan to make them bold when they wouldn't be bold on their own. And for that, I am thankful to be in this prison. I am thankful that the, the weak are stepping up and now they're advancing, they're growing they're confident. They're much more bold. They were bold, but now they're much more bold. Now the great apostle Paul's not there to hold my hand and stand out in front. Now I'm going to do it. Paul's being replaced here, and he's rejoicing in it. That's, that's hard to do. If, if others are advancing more than you spiritually or in leadership, it's hard to rejoice over that because our flesh rises up with envy, and with rivalry, with selfish ambition. Because these men are advancing. I mean, Paul, Paul had in the flesh the ability to feel the same way we feel when this happens, right? He could have felt envious and jealous and prideful, but for a lot of reasons, a lot, of, a lot more reasons than we could. Paul could preach better than those men. Paul knew more than those men. And, and Paul could have responded with a lot of way, in, a lot, in a lot of ways. He could have said... I am, I am the apostle. I am the special sent messenger that God sent to Rome to be the evangelist. I should be out there doing it. They should wait for me. I'll lead them. They should just abide until I'm out. Then they can follow. Or he could have, he could have thought this. He could have thought, I wonder why they're not locked up like me. Ah, I know. They must be compromisers. They must be half-hearted proclaimers. That's why they're still free. In reality, 
I should be out there and they should be locked up here because I could do more than they could do because I am more gifted than they are. Those are, those are thoughts that could have ran through the apostle's mind. Some of those things could have been true. He was called to be the apostle to the Romans. He was more gifted. He was able to face opposition without compromise. He did that all the time. But you notice how envy in the heart starts to reveal itself by not just taking away from other people what they have, but actually saying, I wish they were in my condition. I wish they were suffering like me, and I was the one set free. Paul could have been tempted to do that. I know that we're tempted to do that. I'm tempted to do that. I'll confess sin to you. I'm tempted to do that. I'm tempted to think, that you know, if this, this ministry is growing, it's because those men must be compromising. Because our church is small. We're not compromising. That's why. No. I must reflect back on God's providential plan. There's a purpose in the size of a congregation. There's a purpose in our influence. God could take 12 and turn the world upside down, so numbers don't really matter in that sense. But I need to be reminded of that. And I need to respond to others growing and advancing in boldness and confidence. I need to respond to them like the Apostle Paul here. You know, Philippians 4.9 commands us to follow Paul's example. God commands us to follow Paul's example. And so we need to do that here. Paul, Paul doesn't respond like me. He could have, but he didn't, by God's grace. That's not how he responds. Instead of, it's, it's interesting when I read verse 14, just read it again. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. He throws his imprisonment in there like, I'm, I'm really thankful. I'm imprisoned, but they're doing what I can't do. Instead of envy here, we hear humility. Instead of criticism of these brothers, we hear rejoicing. And we hear that because Paul knows that through them, through God's persevering people, the gospel of Jesus is advancing. Jesus is being praised through God's people. And that's really all that Paul cares about. He is consumed with this. He's confident there in verse 14. He's confident in the Lord. I mean, he's confident that these men are growing because of his imprisonment. He, he knows that these men are gaining confidence because of this imprisonment. It was Lord, the Lord's plan to push these men out through this imprisonment. And he's rejoicing in this. Again, he's rejoicing that God is replacing him. This is sometimes hard for leaders. But we need to re remember the reality that we will be replaced in the future. We are not indispensable. Graveyards are full of indispensable men, right? But the gospel of Jesus and the power of His Word through His people, that, that is indispensable. That's why the church is so essential to God's plan, so central to God's plan. It speaks of us as a body. It speaks of us as a people, not as individuals that is a corporate body that proclaim the gospel of Jesus. We're all united together, but the gospel is what keeps us advancing. That's what's persevering through us. He says these men are much more bold. They were already obviously bold. Now they're much more bold. It means now they recognize Paul's not going to do it. 
We're going to have to step into the gap. We're going to have to take the place of the Apostle Paul. They're going to have to step up and mature. And Paul is rejoicing in this. They're, they're bold now through God's providence. The weak are now being strong. They're showing that they are willing to do whatever it takes to exalt Jesus. And he's rejoicing in that. He says they're much more bold to speak the word. It means proclaim the gospel. And do it without fear. I think, I think his reaction here is amazing in verse 14. I think his reaction testifies to Paul's singularity of purpose, his single-mindedness, his, his purpose to proclaim the gospel at all costs and to get it right and to see other people hear it and learn from it and be discipled by it and then replicate that and multiply that in their lives. I think it also speaks of Paul's humility here and his reflection of Christ-like humility in particular here. Paul, Paul here is so consumed with the advancement of the gospel. He's so consumed with considering others as more important than himself like Christ did for us that he sets aside his personal pride because Jesus is being praised and magnified through the confident boldness of brothers in Rome. They're advancing the gospel when Paul cannot. They're advancing the gospel where Paul cannot. And that's what he's rejoicing in this morning. They're proclaiming the message of God's loving grace that comes through Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection. And, and that's what drives the Apostle Paul when envy is at the door saying, you ought to be doing it and they ought to be locked up. He is gaining an eternal perspective on his immediate circumstances. And that's what I think is important for us today as Christians, as a church. I think Paul's rejoicing in verse 18 about this. Other people are being transformed by the gospel. My brothers are even advancing in the midst of my suffering. And for that, I will rejoice. I'll rejoice. Because through their boldness, the power of God is on display in the world. It's on display through the transformation of God's people. Proclaiming God's message. Just think about this. When, when others are advancing, are we rejoicing? Do you rejoice over this? Do you and I rejoice over the confident boldness and spiritual advancement of others? Or, I'll speak for myself, this is my struggle, do we secretly envy their advancement due to our selfish pride and ambition? I think if you're all honest, you're probably closer to me than Paul at this point. I think that Paul struggled with it too. I think that Paul found a way to fight it, and that's what we're going to look at later, but I think that Paul struggled with this too. You know how I know Paul struggled with this? When you read Corinthians, he says that because of all these surpassing visions that he had, God had to go to extreme lengths to keep Paul humble. He sent him a messenger of Satan to buffet his body, a thorn in the flesh. So I know that Paul struggled with it. Now, I'm not asking for a thorn in the flesh. I'm not asking for a messenger of Satan to stir up this church and make me miserable as I try to labor with you. That's what was going on at Corinth. But I am thankful that God's given us a way out of this temptation through Christ, through rejoicing over His work in others rather than envying them. Envy, envy itself is evil. God hates envy. Because envy leads to pride and selfish ambition, and God hates pride. 
Envy not only wants what others have, such as bold confidence or freedom or the praise of others, but envy goes beyond that. And envy wants to rob those gifts from other people who have them. Envy says that they shouldn't have that, I should have that. That should be mine. They should be locked up, I should be free because I'm the more gifted, I'm the more talented, I'm the more skilled. And it would be better for me to be out there and for them to be locked up. But we need to understand that God hates that. We need to understand why God hates that. God hates that because envy, envy of another Christian's gifts is, is an outright assault and attack on God's glorious work. When you envy other believers, when you envy their progress, when you envy their spiritual gifts, you're, you're attacking God who gave them to that person. You're... you're you're attacking His grace. You're despising His work. Instead of rejoicing in the beauty of the body of Christ growing together to exalt Jesus. It's dangerous. It's deceptive. Envy will destroy a church. C.J. Mahaney, C.J. Mahaney describes the deceptive nature of envy and pride in a book he wrote on humility. If you haven't read it, I highly encourage you that you do. He wrote this, Pride takes innumerable forms, but has only one end, self-glorification. That's the motive and ultimate purpose of pride, to rob God of legitimate glory and to pursue self-glory, self-glorification. That's the ultimate purpose of pride and envy, I would say. It is to rob God of legitimate glory and exalt yourself. I actually heard C.J. preach this sermon on humility. Heard him, watched him live preach this for the first time at the Shepherds Conference years ago. He was asked to speak last, at, the, at the last moment because Dr. John Piper was supposed to speak and Dr. Piper's Dad passed away, so they asked C.J. to take his place at the last moment. C.J. graciously did that. He spoke on humility. And ironically, the first time I heard him do this, I actually also heard right after this, envy rise up in the men around me over C.J.'s preaching. It was amazing. He's preaching on humility, Right? And I'm sitting in the courtyard after the sermon, just devastated by the sermon, repenting in ashes, if you will. And I'm sitting back to back with some men in the courtyard who are analyzing C.J.'s sermon, critiquing him. And then the comment comes from one to the other. These very, very intelligent men, very, I'm sure, wise men in many other ways. He says, well... You know, he missed it on this point, and he missed it on that point, and, well, you know why, brother? He never went to seminary. He only has a high school education. That's why he missed it. And immediately I thought, no, you missed it. You missed it. Envy and pride. You know why? It rose up in their hearts. It rose up in their hearts because it wasn't them on the, on the stage. And that's, that's robbing God of glory. God worked magnificently through the humility of CJ. 
And we should have rejoiced in that. I think the Apostle Paul would have rejoiced in that, whether CJ had a seminary degree or a kindergarten degree. He preached Christ and Him crucified. I think CJ is correct in his assessment of envy and its deceptive nature. I think that the Apostle Paul would agree that this deceptive nature will rob the body of Christ of strength. It will destroy us because it will take our eyes off of God's purpose for the church. Look with me at 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 12. I think this is what Paul says we should do. We should see the growth of others in light of God's purpose for His church to glorify God as they grow. We see their growth. We recognize this comes from the Lord, His gifting, His abilities that are given to His people to magnify Jesus because we are given this by His grace to be His body here on earth, to be His representatives. So we should rejoice when others prosper spiritually and are bold and confident. Here in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul puts it this way in verses 4 to 7. He says, Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. So, okay, there are varieties of ways that the gifts of God express themselves in the people of God, but there's one Spirit that unites us, that gives us these gifts. He says, And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. One Lord, one Spirit. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in every one. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So, so when we begrudge someone of their growth or their bold confidence or their spiritual advancement, we're really attacking God's wisdom here who empowered them, who brought them into one body for the common good of all so that we could all with one voice magnify Jesus on the earth. Flip over in Corinthians there to verse 18. 1218. Paul goes on to say this. He says, but as, as it is, God, God, he says, notice, arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. I cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. On, and on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And on the unpresentable parts, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty. Which, which our, our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to that part which lacked it, that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. I think 26 and 27 encapsulate what Paul is doing in Philippians 1.14. He's rejoicing. He is honoring those that God has equipped and made bold because we are all members of one body. He's honoring them. He's praising God for them. He is rejoicing over their perseverance because it testifies to God's purpose for His church. So, I think there in Philippians 1.14, 
What Paul's sort of teaching us is that instead of cultivating envy, we should rejoice. We should rejoice over the persevering power of God that's advancing the gospel growth of the body of Christ on the earth. I think that's what he's getting at. I think that's why Paul himself made, made encouragement a top priority in his ministry. He made it a priority to advance the gospel by encouraging other believers continually. Not lifting up himself, but edifying others, building up others continually. And I think, I think that's the key to fighting envy. I think what Paul did was he shifted the attention off of himself and onto the work of Christ in the church. I think that's how Paul kept envy at bay. When the church prospers, when they outshine me, when they grow in maturity and I'm left behind, when I die in a prison cell, the church will continue on. And I want to encourage that. I want to edify that. I want to build up those who are doing that. That's how I think he fought off envy and selfish ambition. He realized that the confident boldness and growth of other Christians would advance the gospel without him. He's that consumed with seeing Jesus magnified. He, he's so consumed with it that he would rather die by edifying others than to be lifted up on a pedestal. He'd rather give his life away to edifying others, encouraging others, and knowing that God will use his people to magnify and advance the gospel in the earth. Now that's encouraging to me. I'm not an Apostle Paul, and I know it. And neither are you. But each one of you are part of the body of Christ. And through your encouragement and mutual edification, you can build up one another and advance the gospel, just like these Roman believers who had bold confidence, even in their imprisonment, the imprisonment of Paul. Paul, I think, encouraged them by, by doing a couple really simple things. One, by identifying the evidence of God's grace in their lives and then telling them about it. I think that's the way we need to do it. Now, on your outline, I gave you some biblical examples of how, how Paul did this and how we need to do this so that we can follow his example and advance the gospel by encouraging others. We'll just look at these. There are four listed there. Number one, Paul joyfully advanced the gospel by encouraging, number one, the timid believer. By encouraging the timid believer, ultimately by pointing out God's persevering power to restore confidence in them. That's what he does for Timothy in 2 Timothy 1, 5-7. Paul is joyfully advancing the gospel here by pointing out God's persevering power to restore confidence to Timothy. In verses 5 to 7. He says, I am reminded of your sincere faith. A faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. The timid here, I think, can persevere because of Jesus' perseverance. I think that he's, he's saying, look, Timothy, 
have confidence in this. God's given you the gift of salvation, and with that, He's also given you a spiritual gift. And that gift will advance the gospel. He's encouraging Timothy here so that the gospel of Jesus Christ would be advanced through Timothy's leadership in the church. He's recognizing and marking out certain things that are true about Timothy. Timothy, I know your faith is real. I know you have a spiritual gift. Don't be timid. Be confident. God picked you. God empowered you. See, he's he's not puffing up Timothy. No, he's pointing out the evidences of God's grace in Timothy's life. He's saying, you can persevere because because Jesus persevered. Jesus persevered in his love and his self-control, and it led him to the cross. And through the cross, you've been given salvation and the spiritual gift. So, So take heart, brother. Fan into flame this gift. It came from God. And he will stir it up and cause you to lead the church and advance the gospel. Secondly, Paul joyfully advanced the gospel by encouraging the faithful believers. By encouraging the faithful believers, he he stirs them up to to go out in obedience. The faithful believers are pointed to to God's power, to God's persevering power, and that fuels their obedience. That's what we see in 1 Thessalonians 1. Paul is going to encourage them so that they'll be fueled and continue on doing what they're doing by the persevering power of God here in them. In verses 2 to 10, he says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. He has chosen you because our gospel came to you not in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. I mean, it's amazing how he begins this letter. He begins this letter by encouraging the faithful believers to continue on because God is there. His power has came to them through His Word. He is trying to fuel their obedience through this encouragement. Paul Paul was confident in God's choice of them. He was confident because there was evidence of their election in their life. They were steadfast. They were faithful. They were loving. They were continuing on in the gospel, proclaiming it, turning the world upside down. His confidence was in God's election of the Thessalonians. Their election would advance the gospel. That's what he's saying. You rejoicing over what God has done, this will advance the gospel continually. Your obedience will be stirred up out of thankfulness for your election. He encouraged the faithful so that the gospel of Jesus would advance through their continued witness. Thirdly, 
Paul joyfully advanced the gospel by encouraging not just, not just the timid, not just the faithful, but also the weak. And I'm sure we've all been in maybe all of these categories, but probably this one more than we want. He is joyfully advancing the gospel by encouraging the weak believer by pointing out God's persevering power to overcome our failures. And he does that by, by calling on a failure to serve him because he needs him. In 2 Timothy, in 2 Timothy 4, the Apostle Paul calls on a man in the midst of Paul's own personal suffering and imminent death he calls on a man that had dropped the ball, had failed to follow through with what he said he would do. He calls for John Mark. He calls for Mark, the man who abandoned him in the time of need in the past, whom he separated from because I think Mark filled, or feared uh, suffering and he didn't keep his word to Paul. Yet at this point in Mark's life and in Paul's life, there had been a transformation that had taken place. In such a de- to such a degree that now, as the Apostle Paul is dying and in desperate need, he is humbled by God's grace and says, I can't do this on my own. I need Mark. I need him. I mean, what a, what a testimony to the Apostle Paul's humility and his confidence in God's salvation and sanctifying work in Mark's life. That's what his confidence is in. He could have left this out. He knew he was dying. So why does he do this? He, yes, he needs Mark. But what an amazing testimony to Mark that this call for help would be. Oh, my brother is rejoicing because he sees that I have grown in faith and doctrine. And oh, I want to serve him. Look what it says in 2 Timothy 4.9. Do your best to come to me soon. Now, Paul, just understand this, Paul's dying. Paul will die not long after this letter is written. He will be most likely taken out at dawn in the dark outside of Rome and beheaded for preaching the gospel. And he knows it's coming. This is his last will and testament. And this is what he says. Do your best, Timothy, to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Cretans has gone to Galatia. Titus to Demaltia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you. For he is very useful to me for ministry. There had been a transformation that had taken place in Mark's life and Paul identified it here. And he also identified his own humility here. I need him to continue on this ministry. I am passing. I am dispensable. But the message and the ministry is indispensable. And I want to make sure that Mark knows that I am confident in his ministry. I think that's what's going on here. He's useful for me in the ministry. Paul knows his ministry is about to end. But not the ministry of the gospel. It's going to advance. So I think he's encouraging Mark in this. He's encouraging all faithful ministers to continue on when their leader passes. Fourthly, Paul joyfully advanced the gospel by, joyfully advanced the gospel, I think, put envy at bay by encouraging the repentant believer. He he encouraged the repentant believer by pointing out God's persevering power to restore broken relationships. That's how he encouraged Onesimus and Philemon. 
in Philemon 1, 10. Now, when I read this, I want you to listen to how skillfully Paul edified Onesimus. This is, this is beautiful, Holy Spirit-inspired, pastoral edification. The, the phrases that he uses here could have been left out, and he could have emphasized his command without these. But yet Paul, by the inspiration of the Spirit, wrote this to indicate how he needed others, and he rejoiced over others like Onesimus, who was in this culture treated as nothing, as scum. He was a slave. In verse 10 he says to Philemon, the owner of Onesimus, he says, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. For, Onesimus means, his, his name means useless. Okay? It's, that's his nickname. He was considered useless. Okay? For he was useless to you, but now he's got a new name. But now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you. Notice, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but by your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave. Notice, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So, if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. Now, this is amazing. Paul's confidence was in God's reconciling work that saved Onesimus and saved Philemon and brought them together in one body. Their reconciliation, he knows, would, would actually advance the gospel in the midst of this church. It would express grace and forgiveness and the work of the gospel in our lives. It's going to be reflected through their reception of Onesimus. But I think it's just fascinating to see how detailed Paul became when it came to encouraging Onesimus. It's not written to Onesimus. It's written to Philemon. So why does he do this? Yes, it adds emphasis to his command, but he's an apostle. He could have simply said to Philemon, take him back. It's a command. It's wrong for you to reject him. He's been reconciled to Jesus. He belongs to him. Take him back. But instead, Paul goes to great lengths to write this in such a way that I think Onesimus was encouraged. And I also think it's another reflection of Paul's humility. I need a slave, not as a slave, but as a brother. He is useful for me. He's doing what you can't do, owner Philemon, in your place. I think that Paul's rejoicing in the growth and advancement of Onesimus. Paul's Paul's joy in all of these, these examples of, as he's encouraging others in their faith and their growth because of the gospel, his joy is ultimately not in them in particular. His joy ultimately is in the power of God that is reflected in them as they grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. He's ultimately 
rejoicing over the power of God that is producing bold confidence in the saints there at Rome. He's rejoicing over that because they're persevering and the gospel's progressing. And as I was thinking about even those examples that I just gave you, those four examples, I was thinking about how Paul could have responded in every one of those in a way that probably would reflect more of the flesh, obviously, than the spirit. And then I thought, why didn't he do it? Why didn't he respond this way? And I think ultimately because he knew that Jesus is glorified through his people. And he remembered that when they were advancing. But he could have pridefully and enviously said things like this. He could have said to Timothy, in 2 Timothy, he could have said, step aside, young man. I am the church planter. I know more about this than you do. Obviously, you're letting other people run over you. I am the expert. Step aside. I'll take care of it. Now, he was. He, humanly speaking, had the right to do that. But instead, he chose to encourage Timothy to do the work because the Spirit of God was empowering him so that God would get the praise as a result, not Paul. When you read Thessalonians, Thessalonians had some messed up eschatology. They messed up their view of Christ's return. And, and Paul could have started out that letter with a rebuke, but instead he started off with encouragement. He did rebuke them, but you know how much sweeter a rebuke is when you know the person rebuking you actually loves you and is going to point out evidences of God's grace in you before he rips you to shreds? Sometimes we need to be ripped to shreds, but it serves no purpose if we don't heal that person and point them back to Jesus. And that's what Paul did when he points out that their, their lives are a reflection of the gospel. And yes, your eschatology is messed up. But go back to the gospel and you'll get it right. It'll straighten out. When you come to Mark, when you come to 2 Timothy again where he speaks about Mark, he could have left that whole section about Mark out of the letter. He could have just said, I know I'm going to die. I'm going to face my death. Luke's here with me. That's all I need. The gospel will go forth. He'll use other people. But I don't want that guy who bailed out on me. But instead, Paul says, I, I've seen something happen in Mark's life that's a reflection of God's work. And that's going to advance the gospel when I die. So bring Mark. I need him. And Paul, when writing to Philemon, again, he could have just simply said, take back this repentant slave. He's useful now. But instead, Paul goes to great details to edify and build up this man as he's explaining Philemon's command. I think, I think Paul fought off envy and rejoiced over the persevering power of God and his people because he knew that through that, the gospel would advance. He did rebuke, he did correct, but he didn't envy people in their growth. He had to stop people who were growing in the wrong direction and turn them around. You see that in 1 Timothy. You see that in the rebuke in 2 Timothy chapter 3. But he didn't criticize them. He didn't put them down. He didn't have prideful, selfish ambition over others. He rejoiced when they got the gospel right. And we should too. Instead of envy and pride, 
Paul joyfully advanced the gospel by trusting God to use his people. That means that Paul edified them, he instructed them, but he trusted ultimately that God would be glorified through them and through the message they proclaimed. So that's all he cared about. This man was, was so driven by the love for Jesus that he could not stand the thought of the ministry ending with him. So he wanted to make sure that he poured into others and rejoiced over others as they advanced in bold confidence and proclaimed the gospel. And I hope that we feel that way too. And what I want to do is I want to encourage you to do that this week. I want to encourage you to imitate Paul as Paul imitates Christ. I want to encourage you to prayerfully seek out other individuals in this local church and, and identify in their lives how God has used them to advance the gospel in your life or in other people's lives. I want you to seek out others and, and find them and, and, and share with them what you see God doing through their lives. Because oftentimes, church, we don't see the work of the gospel in our lives the way other people see it. I have a hard time seeing my fruit. I'm trusting God to produce it. I'm abiding in His Word so that it will flow naturally. But I'm also aware that I can't always see it, but other people do see it. And I think we need to identify it, not for, not for self-esteem, but for Christ's esteem. Because ultimately, when you identify the work of a Christian's life, we know if it's a good work, that it's coming from Christ. And He is praised. And He is honored. And in that, we should rejoice because they're growing and reflecting His work. So I want to encourage you to do that this week. Identify His work and encourage them in it to, to help them continue advancing the gospel through their personal ministry in this church and in the world around us. And if, 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 you, can't, if you can't specifically identify certain gifts or things that they have done, do this for me. Seek them out and just thank them for their fellowship. Thank them for their faithfulness. Thank them for their prayers. And then ask them how you can serve them. Ask them how you can share with them the gifts that God's given you. And, and literally, when you, when you ask someone how you can pray for them and they say, okay, brother, I, I'm struggling with witnessing at work. I'm struggling with you know, uh, reconciling problems in my home. Don't, don't say, I'll pray for you, brother. Literally, stop and pray with the person that God has placed in your life so that they would be edified and the gospel would be advanced through that encouragement. That's what you need to do. We need to stop and pray. We need to stop using Christian platitudes. We need to actually do what we're saying we're going to do. If you want to see the gospel advanced, pray for your brothers. Identify God's work in their lives. Encourage them so they will continue on doing this. I think if we do that, I think if we cultivate joy over what God is doing in others, it will put envy at bay. It will put envy and rivalry and selfish ambition to death, and it will produce joy and thanksgiving in the saints to God. I think that's what it's supposed to do. Confidence in God's persevering power in His people, I think will do that. It will build up the timid, it will motivate the faithful, it will strengthen the weak, and it will encourage the repentant. Onesimus was repentant. 
And Paul said, I see evidence of it. Look, Philemon, he's changed. He's been reconciled. And through that, receive him so that we can all together as one body joyfully advance the gospel of Christ. That's what we should rejoice in this morning. We should rejoice that God is working through His people to advance the glorious gospel of Christ and produce fruit in us so that Jesus is magnified on earth. That's what Paul's rejoicing over, I think. There's a lot there that, that is just screaming out about his humility and his, his fight against envy. And I think we should learn from that. I think we should learn from that as, as we move into verses 15 to 18 and see that this issue of envy and rivalry and selfish ambition is in the church. And see how Paul responds to others' envy and rivalry and selfish ambition in those verses next week. Okay? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we, we, have, your, we have your word to encourage us. We thank you that we have the promise of your spirit indwelling in us to produce the fruit that reflects Jesus, that others can identify and point to so that we could be encouraged to proclaim the gospel with joy as a church. I thank you for this church. I pray that you would bless them with wisdom and knowledge, the application of truth, the growth in the truth, so that they would surpass me in knowledge so that they would exalt Jesus. That is, that is why we are here to teach and to preach and to disciple. It's so that they will outshine us because we are dispensable. Yet your message is indispensable and we need to pass that on to the next generation and rejoice when they advance in spiritual growth. I pray that you would cultivate humility and grace in our hearts today and that we would rejoice over the growth of others in Jesus' name. Amen.